Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Well, here we are. Good morning, Mike. Here we are. Good morning. <laughs> Once again. Actually, we... hear, you, hear you there. <laughs> oh, no, virtually we're here. That's right. That's right. We're in the metaverse, Mike. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> so uh, we are continuing this, this lovely spiral of cultural capital, which I think is kind of the only way you, you start to comprehend the topic is just a spiral through it. So for our listeners, if, if you're not getting the clear straight line you, you want, sorry, uh, we're going to continue to spiral. But we left off last week talking a little bit about um, vacating space. How, how Christians, we've actually vacated some of these institutions. So I'd like to pick up their mic and start through maybe what more specifically what you meant by that. You talked about universities, but in the, the, our last conversation. But I don't believe it just is uh, specific to universities. So let's start there, uh, sure. if you'd like. Well, the um, so uh, basically the church was the founder of capitalism, which um, it uh, comes from the combination of words uh, kaput, meaning wit, and uh, so it was using your wits to actually steward your resources. Uh, so capitalism. And uh, this comes out of the Middle Ages. So it came out of the, mostly the monastic movement. As monasteries proved to be reliable banking and investment firms for increasing capital, making investments and getting return on that, and actually improving uh, the general welfare. So there's another example, capitalism. Yeah. Well, I, I sometimes think the classic response to today's media particularly when you think of um you know any of the non-christian morality type things you typically see a bit of a backlash more on the conservative right um that is the the christian conservative right but it's still this this sort of deep-seated frustration of oh the, the culture out there is just a mess and you see it in our our movies and TV and whether it's the sex, the language, the, the focus on LGBT, all of those things, uh, there's frustration in that shame on them. And I think your point is, well, maybe shame on us. We, we vacated that. We we're not the ones making great movies anymore. Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, yes, some people are making a stab at it, but what you do see is, those believers who are trying to make a stab at these things, for example, if you think of um, that uh, redistribution is, for at least for this administration, is sort of the predominant motif when it comes to the economy. Um, well, regardless of what you think of uh, Mr. Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, he had to put in the hard work to earn the chops to gain the merit 
merits to be selected as head of the Federal Reserve. In other words, cultural capital is a meritocracy. Salvation is not a meritocracy. So once we, uh, by the way, everyone know what meritocracy means? Yeah, your credibility based on earning. It's uh, you merit. merit, you merit, for example, you had to merit getting into the University of Maryland, Pat. You just couldn't walk in and say, you know, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus. So salvation, to have been saved, initial salvation is not a meritocracy, not as a result of our good works. Cultural capital is a result of our good works. So there became, especially as the faith became more privatized, sort of a fairy dust view of cultural capital. We're Christians, so God is just going to simply bless us and put us in places where we can actually operate inside the networks that are most influential in shaping sort of the cultural opinions of people. It just doesn't work that way. Right, right. Well, and I think you you can see that as you go down the line and think of institutions where we are not in today, we once were, or at least had more influence in that realm. So you can think politics is is corrupt, and uh, you mentioned several issues of politics, but let's just take uh, government and our leaders of our country. We can get frustrated at times of how corrupt this is or that but as a faith tradition if we're looking at it from the lens of cultural capital we ought to ask well why are we not involved there mm-hmm. yeah again so, i think yeah, it's the same with the, yeah so if you think of um, <clears throat> the university of maryland if you want to actually uh, expend cultural cap if you had it and you wanted to say you know, I'd like to in some way have impact on, um, you know, why is this overwhelmingly, like any other, most of any other university right now in the United States, why are the faculty overwhelmingly lean to the left? It's not necessarily wrong to lean to the left, is that this is not what's called a well-rounded faculty. Well, you'd have to, you'd have to be in the provost office, you'd have to have You'd have to be someone who's taken seriously in the provost office. Think of all the Christian ministries out there on campuses. We are relegated to, as friends of mine said years ago, uh, up at Yale, he said, we are really reduced to cat burglar evangelism. (laughs) And what is that? Well, when the lights are low on campus and classes are done, and people are sitting around in the evening, we slip over the wall and try to introduce them to Jesus. Which has merit, of course, to introduce people to Christ. But they then spend the predominant amount of their time in classrooms where any notion of a serious or active Christian faith is seen as dangerous. Now, there's such a thing as social contagion. Familiar with that? 
No, you probably have to explain that a little bit. Well, sounds we should know about contagious these days after the last two years. <laughs> yeah. And so we've done everything we can to try to limit that. But um, social contagion is when the in these places that have uh, center institutions, they're called that sort of have um, they have heft, they have gravitas. People take them seriously, whether they know it or not. Um, you there's a thing called social contagion. You just kind of pick up the views, whether they're healthy or not. You just pick them up without even thinking about it. We joked about it before, but one of the simplest examples is the advent and now the proliferation of the word dated in our society. Um, although it's certainly been around for a long time, but ever since uh, with HGTV and now Magnolia and the rest is... Um, People who are younger than myself, I'm surprised the number of times they walk into a house. It's got it's perfectly it's a perfectly good kitchen, just happens to be 20 years old, and they go, "This is so dated. We can't cook here." Now, if you pause long enough to parse that, it's nonsensical. Why you can't is the demon? Are the demons infest the space? You literally physically can't get into it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or the appliances physically don't work. No, they're the wrong color. <laughs> so the color determines whether or not these things, you get the point. Oh yeah. That's I'm, called I'm social totally contagion. <laughs> and social contagion is not something where you sat down with your wife and said, Hey, let's, let's be people who are infected with social contagion. Instead, you watch a 30 minute show, which I don't know how they produce those things so rapidly. <laughs> and you watched in 30 minutes, a four month project. And you come away going, dead gummit, that's what I want to happen to our kitchen. Of course, you find out it never happens in 30, it never happens in four months. But all that, that's called social contagion. So social contagion is why I uh, read a report recently that on primetime television, now, 11.8% of the characters are gay. Now, again, set aside, we're not, this is that let's take on the gay community. That's not the point. The point is that the statistics still, even though the number is rising, is still reliably 2 3% of the population, perhaps a little more. But it's rising because of social contagion. Social contagion is, I can pretty much guarantee you, just two decades ago, 12-year-old girls were not seriously considering changing their gender and going through all of the, not only hormone therapy, but the surgeries that are irreversible. Where in heaven's name did they ever get that idea? Well, social media, if you're in the center of that, in other words, you sort of drive the equation, TikTok would be an example, Meta, comes out of a Silicon Valley that has views that are not unlike uh, Pixar, which told Disney that with the new Lightyear movie about Buzz growing up, that he had a African-American lesbian friend and they took out Disney, removed the last one of the last scenes 
where she kisses her friend, her lover. And Pixar said, no, put it back in. And, uh, Dix and Disney acquiesced. And social contagion simply means that if you get wave after wave through various institutions of, well, those aren't bad people, then you're going to find yourself thinking, you're going to be neutered in terms of being able to say anything intelligent about whether or not this is healthy. So what happens is you create parallel institutions. You try. And they're parallel, but they're subcultural, and they have a very limited, perhaps necessary, but limited, now close, I'll make this and then we can talk about it. A picture of the Bible that Jesus uses and elsewhere in scripture is we are the sheep of his pasture and we flourish, we come into the fullness of salvation by going in and out of the sheep pen, in and out. But in going out, we have to find suitable pasture. Why? Because there ain't enough nutrition inside a sheep pen. What am I saying? There ain't enough nutrition if you just stay inside church groups, church school, sermons, even the sacraments. Those are necessary, but they're insufficient. And so even if you keep a little Johnny safely tucked away in a Christian school, I, I feel there's some legitimacy of that. It might be exactly the way to go. Stay in the sheep pen. You do have a problem as he grows and then he wants to play with his friends or eventually wants to drive, wants to get in the car. Now he's out in the wider world. He's outside the sheep pen. So you have him go to a Christian college. Well, your best move after that is going to a Christian ministry. Unfortunately, that just doesn't work for most people. They're not the financial resources to do that. They actually have to go to work somewhere. Could be where you work. Now, you don't flourish if you don't find suitable pasture, Jesus said. You need both hands, in and out, in and out, in and out. You need a healthy church experience, but you need a healthy wider world experience. And when we create parallel subcultural institutions, without, you leave yourself with, when are they ever gonna leave the sheep pen? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I really, uh, I do like that. That imagery. D Not I mean, original. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking about raising children. You know, what are we? How how do we raise them? And with that mindset, that's a very different perspective on r raising children in the faith, as opposed to raising them to avoid all the the evils of the world. You know, raising them to learn how to navigate to go out of the pen. This definitely I, mean, I, I get it. I, I, I get why you do it. I just want, you know, Oh, sure. For whatever listeners we have, I mean, I can feel someone saying, you know, you know, I know kids go to the public schools in the elementary schools. And, uh, you know, that's, it's, that's part of the debate raging in Florida that, I think appropriately so, all the legislator did. Now, by the way, the uh, 
gay community masterfully reframed that. Mm. But it was basically saying parents should be teaching this up to a certain grade. Parents, this shouldn't be. This is not what a second grader should be wrestling with. And uh, But you can see when we vacate that, so we take our best and brightest and say, go over and start a Christian school or homeschool. Again, I'm not opposed to those. And I, I grant you, they might very well be the best option. But again, and you can also grow up with a false sense of this is flourishing because they've gone all the way through and ended up going through this Christian college. So now they're, how old are you when you graduate? 22? Um, yeah. look, at the, look at the way when we're together. Look at our kids. They are flourishing. Um, jury's out on that. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned something really interesting. I've, I've seen this. Well, I started to note this, but when we think about Hollywood, when we think about movies and you can think, well, there's definitely a lack of, um, Christian pursuits in terms of the existing institutions. We have our parallel Christian movies, but think about the characters that you see that are either religious or particularly supposed to be Christian characters in movies. I, I remember seeing some of the, it's probably the late, late nineties, maybe even the early two thousands. Um, just some of the, what would now be the throwbacks of, uh, of those movies. And, and you see, uh, even the shows, uh, you see a, a, probably a Christian character who is just absurdly unrealistic but the worst uh, caricature of a Christian that you might know. And I remember, I remember seeing some of those shows and just thinking, man, the writer of this must have had a really bad experience in church. You know, you could just <laughs> feel the, 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 the frustration of the writer in trying to portray this silly, silly religion. And uh, I think it's a good example. It's a good example of uh, who's, who's writing the script. That's right. Now ask yourself, when was the last time you saw in, in what I can, we call maybe more the mainstream media, the more influential media, a thoughtful, intelligent, attractive, uh, by force of character, a Christian, you just go, that person really, there's something going on in there. Now, I say that because the more you read um, C.S. Lewis and then you read George MacDonald, in MacDonald, presented this in his fictional works as there's something magnetic about righteous people. There's just something mystical going on there. And, um, you know, you don't pick up that kind of nuance. In fact, just, I just remembered my, I, had, I was good friends for many years with Karen Goodwin before she passed away. And Karen was a very thoughtful, active Catholic, and she was instrumental in bringing Les Miserables to the United States, to, to New York, to the theater. Wow. Now, Les Miserables is a presentation of the gospel, but it does it subtly, indirectly, a la Emily Dickinson, and it is gorgeous. We don't do enough of that. We often tend to be more 
the blunt instrument. Here's a show about Jesus. But you see theater and entertainment, which are very powerful. It's because the French word entertain means to hold. And so entertainment holds us. And so if we are held, we are beheld, we behold. That's what that was what is supposed to be so powerfully attractive about the triune God. He he literally holds us. We are beheld. But these days, when I look around, people again we joke, they're gonna need chiropractors as they get older, their neck is slumped over and a very small screen has them in their hold. And we think we're holding up, but we're actually being held. held. Yeah. And the uh, if you pay attention at all, between the latest commercials I've seen for TikTok, Airbnb, and VRBO, they always very skillfully, very subtly, and very beautifully throw in a gay couple. Now, all that does in social contagion is that for those who believe in permanent monogamous male-female definition of marriage, that's like erosion on the beach. It just erodes some of your confidence that you could in any way make any sort of statement about what you believe and be viewed as a credible person, plausible. And that's because we generally, beginning in the early 1800s, became a faith which had a disdain for institutions. Initially, it would have been Catholic institutions. And then it was any sort of European Protestant institutions. So they had the fastest growing evangelical denomination in the U.S. in the early 1800s. I bet you can't even name what it was. Nope. Disciples of Christ, their head Campbell, said, I have no need for institutions or traditions. He basically said, if I have a Bible, a brain, and the Holy Spirit, I can understand it all. So, Mike, one of the things I was drawn to when I first started to hear you talk and I think the element I resonated with was was just this seeing parallel institutions and recognizing that that's actually a gap of us being taken seriously. It's a gap of our cultural capital. But then I started to embrace the sobering reality, uh, which I think you refer to as kind of recalibrating expectations and understanding that what I thought I could fix, you know, five to 10 years as an individual, would probably go beyond maybe even my lifetime in terms of taking cultural capital seriously and actually making a, a dent in in the, the stewardship of this, this world, the dominion of this world. Mm -hmm. That's pretty sobering, but I think it's a good place to, to talk about next is actually as someone who sees this and as someone who, who maybe gets it and recognizes the reality we're in, the there's a 
there is a sobering reality, which is we, we don't know what we're doing. And likely if you grew up in the Christian faith tradition in the U S you, you probably don't know how to gain or regain cultural capital. So I think one thing to embrace and to sit in for a little bit, if, if someone's listening to this is, is just that is processing. Uh, one, it's going to take a while, but two, I actually, I have to learn what in the world that means to, to be taken seriously by someone else. And that'll probably take a long time to do. So the first thing is just to, to acknowledge that and sort of accept that. Yeah, this, and by the way, I'm, I'm generally a pretty cheerful chap. Um, but, um, you can listen to these and go, geez, old pizza. What is, uh, <laughs> what is someone married to him? Does he have a, um, yeah, uh, I agree. And I, I think it's gotta be, it's gotta be, uh, sort of chunked out into such bite-sized, bite-sized pieces. So for example, you got to have parents that um, male, female parents who grasp or embody the marital gospel. So they talk to their kids just in a normal, natural way, but they actually embody. This is why male, female. When the kids ask. Now, see right there, it's hard to develop cultural capital. The parents go, uh, because uh, the Bible says so. So you, Pat, and we were part of, we, Pat and I and several others, ran a beta group for in and over this past year just to try to reintroduce a handful of Christians from around the world to this whole gospel that disappeared beginning 500 years ago and disappeared in the Western world. You can see right there, it's hard to get cultural capital if you don't even know the historic gospel, but swear you do. And then it can be as simple as uh, talking about what they're learning in school or socializing in their neighborhood because uh, they're going to play with kids. You know, the big E, too, is a a, a discernment of, uh, okay, here is the uh, iPad 30 minutes, but then... You just talk about what are you learning on iPad? What are you seeing? What do you what do you find attractive? So you're not saying no. Maybe you will. But again, if you say no, you you've got you have you're you're heading toward an intersection. And that intersection is the sheep gate. And it could be where they go to college, high school. But they're going to have to leave the pen. They're going to have to, chicks are going to have to leave the nest. And unfortunately, at 18, there have been a long time since they've been chicks. And um, they're going to be malnourished if you just keep them in the parallel subcultural institutions. As much as you're convinced, no, they come home and they know X, Y, Z, and they've learned apologetics. And I'm not saying those things are necessarily bad, but those are learned in a sterile environment sterile in this regard they don't have all of the challenges of going to work in baltimore at under armor where you i've sat in that really cool big lunchroom 
And you just listen to another conversation. And you, then you'd say to someone who loves Jesus, so how, how would your faith make a difference here? And I'm sure everyone I've ever known there would go, well, other than individual friendships, which are good start, I have no idea beyond that. And this is Under Armour, as many other places, Gay Pride Month. And uh, social contagion is simply going to say, of course, we want people to be the best version of themselves. And that means giving them unfettered choice as to who they are. And guess where they learned unfettered choice, in part, from us. And our faith, particularly from the 1800s on, was grounded in choose Jesus. You as an autonomous, rational individual. And the notion of cultural capital disappeared. Nathan Hatch is one of the best historians out there, by the way, Pat. And uh, I believe he's, believe he's at Notre Dame still. And he said, the problem then is once you're individualistic, then we are infected with what's called immediatism. And what's immediatism? Mm. The obsession of the immediate. Well, it simply means you, you lack the uh, perseverance and patience to build the capital to make an impact beyond the individuals. The immediatism is, let's I'll give a quick example. And I worked with a um, college organization ministry, um, and, and I, it was a wonderful time for eight years. But when I joined way back, way, way, way back in 1976, at that point, it was in a big campaign called I Found It. Notice the individualism there, by the way. And the goal was, we're going to reach the United States in 1976, by 1976, and we're going to reach the world by 1980. That was, uh, I know that sounds a little unusual today, but I joined that summer, this organization, it was the largest number of college graduates that ever applied and then accepted, roughly 700. Now, our little slogan was the very same one that came out of a student movement in the late 1800s to reach the world, and it too drew enormous numbers of students. What was the problem? Fizzled out. That's right. Why? didn't reach the world. Well, it wasn't evident we did. So we began to fudge the numbers and say, well, it means, for example, on a college campus, if you're able to evangelize 3% of the campus total population or some number, they will in turn share with others who will share with others, a la 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, blah, 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 blah. And we had a, a whole thing that the telemarketers, I mean, multi-level multi marketing people really grabbed onto and loved. And, uh, but it just doesn't work that way. Immediatism is just literally, believe it or not, here was one of the phrases we had. We had to get more staff to accelerate the harvest. I'm not making this stuff up. Accelerate the harvest. Hmm. And it didn't strike any of us as odd. 
It does today. Why? Well, that's assuming you have a lot of power to do the acceleration. Well, who are you accelerating? Who's the Lord of the harvest? <laughs> Come on, Jesus, here we go. <laughs> Hang on. We are going to reach more people than you ever plan to reach faster. Now, because of that, why in heaven's name would you say, you know, for me to do well, I've got to go on to, to this school. If I can get in, I'm going to earn a doctorate. Why? Because I've got earned cultural capital to work my way up. It's, merit, it's a meritorious system. Listen, we're going to reach the world by before you even graduate. Now, there's been big changes in a lot of evangelicalism since then, but the writer of uh, the book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, worth reading, is he racially said, the scandal is we're going backwards because we've become politicized and because we didn't, we did make a stab in some ways to create institutions. They're parallel, mostly, mostly subcultural. And we still feel like things are going backwards. So now we're going to turn to Washington for the solutions. That's called immediatism. So if we can get the right person elected, he will drain the swamp. Well, how's that worked out? Yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking that. Don't think that worked out. Well, so Mike, I'm, in the couple minutes we have left, mm -hmm. I'm curious if you've seen this done well. Um, you know, maybe some models that do exist. I don't think what we're saying here is that no one has done anything. Mm -hmm, that's right. They are just few and far between. Um, yeah. So do, do any come to mind to you, for example, uh, that might be helpful just as, yes. as models? Yes. Uh, there's plenty, 20-plus uh, um, efforts out there at various churches to do fellows programs, and that's a gap year for recent college graduates. And... Um, while there's no uniform curriculum, um, I know that when I taught in two of them, as sort of an adjunct faculty, I tried to introduce uh, graduates to what we're talking about here. So I'm still in touch with many of them to this day, but my point being that you probably have the most flexibility as a uh, individual uh, the year you come out of college, because, you, you know, you're not going to change the world that year you come out. And so for a lot of them, they take a gap year. And uh, th those, I think, let's see, those are very long range plans because you're working with wet cement in many ways. And, um, you know, they will not be in positions of influence till 20 years out. But those are good. And I think those are terrific. Uh, just wish there were a lot more. Um, you have um, you have efforts in the business world to earn this kind of capital too. I will say that I think Tim Keller's onto something when now you know he's his 
probably unlikely to live many more years, if not even a year, with his battle with prostate cancer. I believe it's prostate cancer. But the uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City has an eight-point plan going forward. Two of them, I think, are very intriguing. First is, he said, Christian formation, spiritual formation, has to be redone. And he adds this, completely. I would agree. What we're talking about here today is actually what's called formation. And in the older, more ancient marital gospel, the foundation is Jesus. Formation is the bride preparing to experience the fullness of salvation. That's a gap today for most Christians. They go, well, my foundation is Jesus, and I'm going to heaven. Where I'll experience the fullness. What do you mean? Prepare, formation, blah, blah, blah. It's called discipleship, and it's very weak. For him to say it needs to be redone completely, a man not given to overstatement, I think he's absolutely right. And we could talk in length about that. Second, he also says they've got to redo faith and work. And I agree with what I read that he said in this regard. Faith and work, even in, and there's some really fine, good works, and I won't list them, but they are many are built around, for example, um, like Praxis is actually doing a very good job. But the challenge with these is you're working again in a parallel subcultural institution. Praxis takes his model from IDEO. Well, why wouldn't you want to get an IDEO? It's hard, it's small. So what do you do? You create a parallel, but it's subcultural in terms of the investors and the scale of investors and size of investors in IDEO swamp those in Praxis. Now, maybe Praxis, 10, 15 years out, will be on that level. I certainly hope they are, but they're not today. But I also think you have the other challenge is you're still stuck with, as a friend of mine many years ago said, as much as I appreciate it, I can't use that kind of language in my workplace. So I happen to think, and by the way, people will think, well, aren't you, you sound like you're Roman Catholic. I'm not. I'm Catholic, little C, universal. And the interesting thing that Tim Keller says, we have to develop something like Catholic social thought. Roman Catholic social thought. Here's a Protestant saying that. He says, actually, a Protestant version of it. He does raise the question, why a Protestant version? What if it's this is good enough? Can't be improved on or something like that. Catholic social thought is far wider and broader than faith and work and takes seriously cultural capital and institutions. So I think you've got gap years, fellows programs, um, you've had in the past efforts to do something like that with high schoolers. Um, you've got faith and work. So there are a lot of good initiatives out there. Uh, yeah, the Wedgwood group trying to do things in art, in the arts and theater and what have you. Uh, my friend, Mark Rogers, I think it's terrific work. So you have all sorts of people given working hard. It's just, it's hard work and it's hard to get serious investors because the return is way out there in the future. I, I think that's encouraging a little bit. I'm just saying, 
what we're talking about is not something brand spanking new that has never been done. What we're talking about is we need more to take this seriously than already are, but some already are. Yes. And yeah, I've drawn on the Babylonian exile for many reasons as a precedent. One of which is the Judeans who were drug away as exiles. Exile means outsider. Outsider means you don't operate inside the networks here in Babylon. They're most influential in, in how people in the wider world think, including even in Judah. And they didn't buy that. So they got a belly full of it by being drug into Babylon. There's no evidence that the majority of Judeans took any of this seriously, but the sons of Judah did because they had earned cultural capital back in Jerusalem serving under King Jeconia. So for their first three years in exile, they were selected by King Nebuchadnezzar to learn the language and literature of the Babylonians. Why? Nebuchadnezzar didn't speak Hebrew. And I think a three-year investment somehow for young professionals that actually introduces them to the language and literature of post-Christian world and what that looks like and how we got there would include these kind of conversations, causing young people to go, huh, well, how can I earn cultural capital in the place in which I work? It can be done if you're properly resourced, because there is nothing original what we're talking about here, Pat, to your point. There's nothing new here, nothing new under the sun. The resources are there in church tradition, church history, scripture, but they gotta be updated and translated into the language of today. So that if I was a 22 or three year old, I could go, oh, this makes sense. This makes sense. I'm going to do my work a little better, a little harder, but I'm also going to think about the powers to be that actually run this public school and teaching it. How would I ever have my understanding of education taken seriously and acted on? Hmm. Well, if Horace Mann could do it back in the 1850s and create the first public schools in America, I can do this too. I've just got to understand it's a meritocracy. Mm -hmm.